everybody. This is Monica Perez, and we are joined once again by, I'm going to say, a gentleman scholar of the law and an actual practitioner of the law extraordinaire, our friend Eric Buchanan, who fights the good fight in real life, helping people get what they have paid for and what they are entitled to in disability acts in actions. Um, he is the obviously founder and titular um, attorney at Eric Buchanan and Associates, which you can find at BuchananDisability.com. And you can address anybody's claims or at least direct them uh, across the country, right, Eric? Yeah, hey, Monica, that's right. We help people who have disability insurance problems all over the United States, work with local attorneys where we need to in some states, other places we work directly doing all the work ourselves, but we handle those claims anywhere in the U.S. And it's primarily disability insurance. If an insurance company like Hartford or Aetna or MetLife denies somebody's claim or is giving them a hard time, they should call us or reach out at BuchananDisability.com. I had a friend who told me, I was in law school, and she said, the people who hate lawyers are just the ones who don't have a good one. So I personally feel like the lawyers who are taking action against injustice, especially during lockdown and bad policies and unconstitutional policies and um, illegal work policies are, are really have been the hope of, of some people, the only hope. And continue to be our only hope. So I'm a big fan of lawyers who fight the good fight. And obviously, you're a person whose integrity I uh, have experienced and trust. So I'm very happy to direct people to BuchananDisability.com. And I thank you very, very much for your time and effort. I mean, I just feel like you're a walking encyclopedia when it comes to any constitutional question I have ever had. So I decided to make it harder and include the Articles of Confederation. And I will tell you why. So you are truly, I have a series when I do interviews, a dive master interviews, and you are truly a dive master. So Appreciate that. And uh, so here's the thing. So people who listen to my show on a regular basis know that I often throw out there that the Constitution is why we have these problems, that that we have this national government central control. It's a slippery slope. Patrick Henry is my favorite founder. He saw it coming. And that if only we had the Articles of Confederation, we would be better off. And I, I usually point to my suspicion that it's because they didn't have this uh, awesome power of taxation that we have now, which even was worse now after the IRS was established, after the income tax amendment was supposedly ratified, <laughs> but that, that that was really the beginning of the end. And what I wanted to know from you is basically what kind of system did the Articles of Confederation set up? What were the most important features? And was it really the beginning of the end when the Articles of Confederation were uh, replaced by the Constitution. Because another thing I say all the time is, look at the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution. They were all hijacked ten years later by a different by a different force, not the ones who fought the revolution, but the ones who would hijack the revolution. And I, I really, I say that kind of casually, and I feel like you're gonna either put put my money where my mouth is or you're going to correct the record and I either one I'm happy to have so so let's let's just launch it you know what are the articles of confederation or anything how, however you want to start sure let's so let's dig in with the with the short big answer and then we'll get in we'll get down in the weeds my short big answer is 
that I think the Articles of Confederation were doomed for, for failure and that they were never going to be functionally operative to have a country or even a set of countries succeed in the world, even in the late 1700s. And, and I'll be happy to explain why, that we did need str a stronger constitution. And the fight between the Federalists who wanted a much stronger constitution and the Anti-Federalists who were the people who kind of wanted to keep the Articles of Confederation uh, and those names are really – it gets complicated because they're actually misnomers. They're backwards. Yeah, they're actually kind of backwards, right? Uh, we'll get into that some more as, as we explain this. But ultimately, the compromises that were re reached at the Continental – at the Constitutional Convention over, you know, getting past the Articles of Confederation, I think – were pretty good compromises and we ended up with a pretty darn good constitution that worked well for about 150 years and then my contention is early late 1800s early 1900s uh, we started to screw it up big time with the what i call the pop a lot of people call the populist amendments a couple of them were good the 17th amendment allowing for women to vote no problem with that but the 16th hey, especially since it gave us warren harding and calvin coolidge the yeah. biggest landslides in presidential history were the two best presidents right after women got the vote. Because I get a lot of flack. Like, we love you, Monica, but, you know, women getting the vote was the beginning of the end of this country. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it wasn't – it was more than that. It was, it was the populist – so the income tax – uh, which which was passed by Congress in 1909 and then adopted in 1913 as a constitutional amendment. Uh, and then ultimately also the direct election of senators, the other amendment that did that. And we could throw prohibition in there as as another thing yeah. that all came out in the populist amendments, although that one they fixed as well. But those were right. the kind of the beginning of the sea change that led to the 20th century, I would say, misreading and misunderstanding the Constitution. And we can even Is go it? into a different show, Monica, that, that, and I think some people on the Supreme Court right now are, are recognizing that and wanted to turn back huh. the clock and actually Clarence Thomas. Things. Yeah, and some of the other ones. Um, so, but go ahead. I was just, so if you want to start from here, ask your question, but the, I was going to say, let, let's just talk for a second about how kind of unworkable the Articles of Confederation there were. There you go. Good right. idea, but, but why they didn't work. So first of all, the Articles of Confederation uh, – did only had one legislative body you had one congress and so the yes. representatives of each state each state could decide if they wanted to send between two and seven people to go represent them in this congress and in the congress each state got one vote so that committee of two to seven people had to decide just like the electoral college or whatever and vote as a block that's exactly right. And basically, by the way, that was also how they voted on the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So in, in the debates over whether we wanted to stop having just a fight for our rights as Englishmen, but instead be an independent country, that time period, 1775 to 1776, the Declaration of Independence was voted on. And for the nerdy people that want to know, so where does our technical sovereignty come from in these rules, a motion was passed in the Continental Congress in, in 1776 that the Declaration of Independence had to be agreed on unanimously. All 13 states, all 13 former co colonies about to become states countries. had to agree and on the states, Declaration of Independence. States is used interchangeably with countries throughout the Articles of Confederation. Yes, it is. States is used interchangeably with countries, probably in American dialogue up through the Civil War. Okay. Uh, All right. So, so, so they it, got the Declaration of Independence and then yeah. keep going. Well, so Ken Burns got it right. He, we don't always agree with his politics, but he got it right in that Civil War miniseries 
whenever that was 25 years ago, that up through the Civil War, Americans referred to the United States are something because they were considered these united countries. And so go back to the Articles of Confederation. After the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Congress is fighting a war, trying to figure out how to get supplies to General Washington. We've now decided we're an independent country. How the heck are we going to govern this country? Well, we certainly don't want to have a strong central government again, because that's what we're breaking away from. But each of the 13 colonies, they were, in a lot of ways, had been operating independently of each other. And it was only through committees of correspondence and the Continental Congress that they'd started to have basically what was more of an alliance of between 13 independent entities, whether you called them a state or a country or a former colony. And in a lot of ways, their relationship with Great Britain as the mother country was each one was separate. And if you think about it today, Gibraltar and 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 Bermuda are not exactly on, you know, they're allied with each other. They're separate colonies of, of Great Britain. And Canada, didn't, didn't Canada, Rhode Island secede prior to the revolution? Yeah, I think so Rhode Island had the secession, but the, the 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 debate on what eventually was to become a national level across America, so the, the, the American Continental Congress, that was still an open question in, in, in 1776. Yeah, but I'm just saying that they they just opted out of being part of the UK and or whatever it was called at the time, and they didn't seem to have to fight a war over it. I'm not sure if that was true or not, but if it seems to me like that was an independent thing that it did independent of the other colonies. And I don't remember it starting a war, but yeah. So, well, when, when they did that, how enforceable is that until the rest of the colonies basically agreed we're all on the same side. Oh, okay. And that would give rise to what really seems to be the heart of the articles of confederation, which is mutual defense. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump ahead. So they, they passed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and they got around in 1777 to basically say, okay, how are we going to run this place? We've just created a country called the United States of America. But if you go back and look at the Declaration of Independence, it's united is in lowercase and states yes. is in uppercase. I know. And and in the Articles of Confederation, United States is repeatedly in lowercase. Occasionally, it's, I think, I uh, know, it's, it's in lowercase throughout. Yeah. So, well, a couple of things that they did in the Articles of Confederation, we talked about this already. They had one Congress made up of representatives from each state. You could have two to seven people. The state would elect them by whatever means the state decided. There was no requirement for a popular vote. It was normal for the state legislature to send the representatives. Each representative, all the representatives would get there. But New York got one vote. South Carolina got one vote. Pennsylvania got one vote. Each got one vote. And then what happened, like, if, if, there's, if there's any kind of dispute between the states? Well, they had this kind of a complex system of appointing which of the representatives would then sit on a committee to basically hear the dispute of the states. And it was effectively the Supreme Court was made up of a, of a select committee within the Congress. I liked and, that, though, because it, it changed every time and it was kind of random and felt arbitrary. It seemed incorruptible. Right. But their, but their jurisdiction was kind of limited. Their jurisdiction was limited to disputes between the states. What other so, disputes could there be? Well, 
what if what if Congress passed a law pro uh, prohibiting free speech? Who's going to who's going to decide whether that oh, law did Congress have that power? Because looking in the Articles of Confederation, it said I thought that it said that it only had the power to do th it didn't have any power except for what was expressly in there. And it seemed kind of limited. It seems limited that, to like war true. stuff. Yeah, and so what you are now making is the anti-federalist argument yeah. later on of why we didn't did or did not need a Bill of Rights. So the argument that was made at the time of, of the Articles of Confederation is the states retain all their sovereign power. They are the ultimate authority on almost everything except those things that are expressly delegated to this national – they called it actually at the time of the Articles of Confederation a central government. They didn't use the words federal government yet. They were calling it a central government and the central power. That was the common way of referring to it. And so the central power only had those things laid out in the Constitution. But or in the article in the Articles of Confederation, the same thing happened in the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists said we don't need a Bill of Rights because if we don't give the federal government that Congress the, the power in the first place, they can't go there. Yeah, but and, the, and the Federalists will will do a Bill of Rights to make it clear. And it's the darn thing I submit. Of it's course, a darn thing yeah. they, that they did because at some point they're going to grow out of power. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the Bill of Rights, I totally agree, was necessary in the Constitution, and I'm familiar with that argument. But I would say in the Articles of Confederation, it wasn't necessary because, and actually the anti-federalist argument that if you put the Bill of Rights in, it implies that the government has more power than we are allowing it to have. I think that is clear in the Articles of Confederation because there's there are no mechanisms for anything. There's no The president just presides over Congress, and Congress was basically... 13, you know, votes. It was really a Senate and a limited one with term limits and all of that. And a very really seemed very well-defined uh, authority over just um, enforcing free trade and having a common defense, kind of more like the EU than I, I just see no mechanism by which they could have these expansive laws. But you have to tell me if in those 10 years, if you if you know, did they actually do expansive laws that were a problem? It didn't even really have any mechanism for collecting the taxes, except for, I guess, which would pay for the wars. I guess the mechanism would be ostracism or exile or whatever, like if it's not worth paying for. And I kind of like that, too. If it's not worth paying for, then you can just be excluded. What difference does it make? You know, it's just it's almost like a treaty, whereas with the Constitution, it sets up like like very clear to bicameral legislature and um, it's got an executive, it's got a Supreme Court, it's clearly got a lot of power. It doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. I consider that to be totally unconstitutional. I uh, think that came out of the Civil War, the Department of Justice and the FBI and stuff like totally changed everything when they had. And we want to talk about the things that changed everything after the Civil War. And that's one of them, in my opinion. But I feel like the Bill of Rights, yes, is appropriate for the Constitution because it was a it was a really pregnant with the tyranny, whereas the Articles of Confederation were not. Yeah, those, those are good points. Let, let, maybe if we let's take a step back and finish breaking down what's actually yeah, in the Articles of Confederation. It. And then I think I, I can address your point about why I would have had concerns about it lasting any longer. Because so yep. within the Articles of Confederation, each state sends X number of delegates, two to seven to this to this Congress. The Congress would have a if there was a dispute between the states, they effectively set up a, a a commission that is made up of members of Congress. There's this very arcane system where they elect a certain number of people. Both both states each take turns knocking people off. They get it down to, I want to say it was nine people. It's left. like a jury. 
Right. And then they select out of a hat down to the last five. It. And then those five people make the decision in the dispute between the states and their decision is final. There is no appeal. So that's that's one thing that was set up in the uh, article of confederation that was kind of interesting. Going to your point about the mechanism of taxation. The, the Congress did have the power to say this is what the states need to pay us. So they had the authority to say this is what we want. And it was limited not by the number of people in each state, yes. but by the value of the real property in each state. I have to comment on that. That is absolutely, to me, totally logical because you were paying in proportion to your benefit. If there was an invasion and you were a big state like Virginia versus Rhode Island, there is absolutely no reason for Rhode Island to pay it's it's insurance. It was property taxes to pay for property insurance. And that to me seemed totally valid. Whereas an income tax on individuals productivity is a ta is a perverse thing that has no correlation whatsoever, except for the extent that contracts need to be enforced in proportion to their size. But you could actually privatize that. So I don't like uh, the income tax from on philosophical grounds. And I like the way they did it on the proportional taxation for the property value, including the improvements, because that is what the army is there to ensure. Sure. So, I, well, let's go ahead and get in the weeds a little bit on that one. So who decides how much Virginia's property is worth and how much New Congress. York's property is worth? <laughs> it says Congress is like, yeah, however. Pretty much, right? So Rhode Island gets the same vote that Vermont does, and Vermont gets the same vote that South Carolina does, and South Carolina gets the same vote that Maine does. Uh, not Maine, but Massachusetts. Maine was still part of Massachusetts at the time. Uh, New Hampshire got a vote, and they all get together, and they vote that New York has uh, twice as much real property as anybody else except for Virginia, so they owe the well, most taxes. Didn't it feel like it had to be consistent, a method? Like you couldn't just gang up and have a different method for one state? Did well, it not work that way? Is who's ultimate, so if, if New York turns in their report to say, oh, our property is worthless right now. There's not much cash available in New York, and it's one cent an acre. While the Virginia rich farmland, that's 10 cents an acre. And oh, so yeah, I see. Sometimes as much as we do, A, Who's going to decide that dispute? Well, I mean, there were market transactions. I mean, that has to be, yes, it, it isn't specified in the document, but I feel like they had so much more logic then. And there's another thing that like Congress decides whether your actions and your standing army and that kind of thing is a, uh, is it defensive or is it potentially offensive? Like all the other states decide on that too. And it, it felt like there was little checks and balances in there. And then and then let them go if they don't like it. See, there's also that natural resistance that if Virginia doesn't like how it's being treated, it can leave and take all its money with it. And you know what I mean? And, and actually use the other states as a buffer and not pay for it unless except, the other states yeah, decide to invade. It can't, right? So, so it can, though. No. Why wouldn't it be able to? Oh. The union is perpetual. Okay, but it I'm just saying it can, the Confederation. it can just not pay. Exactly. And de facto... So that's what I was leading up to. So if there's a dispute between the states, Congress gets to resolve that dispute. And if and if the if the states still can't agree, and, and like New York's having a fight with Maryland or something, or Pennsylvania and New York are having a Pennsylvania and Maryland have a fight over their border, it goes to Congress, the special committee, and they say, well, this is how, this is the final decision, and then there's no appeal from that. There there is there's no other check and balance 
on Congress saying, and oh, by the way, part of that is we've decided that, that Maryland has to pay damages and Maryland doesn't pay, or Maryland needs to make it up to Pennsylvania or whatever. Or what if Maryland, there, there's, so there's, there's, when it, when it ultimately comes down to it, there's no mechanism to make Maryland pay taxes or pay anything. Yeah, it just has to be that they want to be in good standing. And I know that we've heard through the ages that that actually was a real problem, but I've also heard people say that it really wasn't. It was just used as an excuse. Do you feel like those were real problems? Yeah, so let's not skip ahead too fast because one problem was these rules were never in effect for most of the revolution. The Articles of Confederation were not adopted until they were approved by every new state. In July 1778? No, correct? it wasn't until oh. March of, 18, of 1781. Oh. So the okay. whole time period during, during the vast majority of the revolution, all the fighting in New England and all the fighting in New Jersey and New York, and it, the, the fighting had moved down to Virginia and North Carolina by the time uh, it was finally ratified by the 13th former colony, now state. Maryland was holding out. And one of those little kind of interesting trivia questions is Maryland was a landlocked colony that became a landlocked state. And they basically held out and said, we're not joining this United States and signing the Articles of Confederation <laughs> until, we get, until we get an agreement that Virginia, North Carolina, New York, Pennsylvania, all of these states that have Western borders with the Western territories, that, that, that what became Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, basically out to the Mississippi River, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, those areas, the, the colonies had claimed those areas. The states continued to claim those areas. Maryland, like Rhode Island, that doesn't have a border with anything out west, so they're going to be stuck. Well, if Virginia gets to be five times bigger as as it goes as history goes on, and it gets to claim what became Ohio and Indiana, or big chunks of it, Maryland said, "There's no way we can compete with them within this framework." So we want to promise that what ultimately is going to happen is those areas are going to become separate states. That was the agreement that finally got Maryland to sign the Articles of Confederation, and that was in March of 1781. That doesn't seem 100%. Um, you know, why didn't Maryland just take the win and say, I have an equal representation in my tiny state? It was 13 votes, and they got one of them, and they weren't, wouldn't have to pay in except for in proportion to its land. Like, what was, what was the beef? Yeah, so I think part of the beef was they really wanted access to that land, but right. if they couldn't have it, they didn't want anybody else to have it. And just politically, they were more of a urban, slightly less rural state. Okay, two things there. One is, it seems to me, or I have read, that the battle was between the rising merchant economy and the existing agrarian economy. However, I would also say it's possible that the real threat was from the Indians. So if Maryland didn't feel like it had any exposure, why would it have to be in a mutual defense? It, it's not a legitimate ally if it has only downside and no upside because it's already buffered. It could be a free rider on the upside because it was completely safe, but then get sucked into having to defend the Western border. Or is that, I think, because the Indians are mentioned in the Articles of Confederation as a, uh, as like the only threat mentioned by name. 
Yeah, so I, I think there's some legitimacy to that argument. And I think part of what was going on by the end of the revolution when the Treaty of Paris was finally signed in 1783, that the United States Articles of Confederation had only been in effect for two years, then who's going to go make the British give up those forts in what is now United States territory? Who's going to get them to stop trying to tell the Indians to come attack us? Excuse me. And and without a, a, any kind of a strong central government, that was going to be a problem. If you want to skip on ahead to the what I think the straw that broke the camel's back was, and a lot of historians agree, was Shays' Rebellion. And Shays' Rebellion goes back to what you were just talking about. It was the agrarian economy versus the merchant and the uh, and the urban uh, middle classes. And so what happened was in Massachusetts, well, set it up a, a little bit earlier. During the Revolutionary War, the, the United States government, un, acting as if the Articles of Confederation were in effect before 1781, basically what they agreed to do was we're going to treat these as if they are in effect and operate under them, but they weren't officially in effect until Maryland signed them in March of 1781. One of the promises Congress made in order to get soldiers to fight in, in the Continental Army and to volunteer in the revolution was if you fight uh, for your new country, you'll get a half pension half pay for the rest of your life. When the war ended, that kind of just fizzled out and they never followed up on that. At the same time, uh, the federal government, the, the, the central government under the Articles of Confederation was trying to pay their bills and pay for this army and pay for money they had borrowed from France and, and from Spain. And where do they get that money from? And there's and there's some historical uh, math that their total amount that they had borrowed was a couple million dollars, which was real money back then. Yeah. Uh, and that they had uh, other expenditures of another couple million dollars over, say, a, a three-year period. And during that same period, this what the states actually contributed to them was less than two million dollars. So they spent seven or eight million, borrowed a couple million more, and they only got two or three million in income during that time period because the state weren't paying them so they issued continental dollars the first greenbacks and they were worth so little that it used to be an expression that 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 x is so worthless it's not worth a continental oh yes i've heard that well i would i i wonder as you know my libertarian side says that the best thing that ever happens to a country is if it defaults on its debt and can no longer borrow and then they would have to require a war chest. So if you want to be part of the union, you have to pay in advance. I mean, it is possible this thing could have been resolved in a different way. Like Russia in the 90s, the 1990s, uh, went belly up on its debt. And I attribute, or the last time I looked at their current debt level, we have 130% of GDP as our national debt. And the last time I looked at Russia, which was a while ago, it was low, like 13%. And I attribute it to that. And I feel like, if you don't always it's like I feel like Ronald Reagan bailed out the closing the gold window. He was like, well, we've had nothing but hyperinflation since then. And then Volcker's like, well, just raise rates. And it saved a bad system. And I worry if that saving, uh, you know, the debt culture, granted, they had to do it in the revolution. And maybe if it came down to that, it would have gotten the states to pony up and continue to participate. So my argument, my what I caught wind of is that it's possible that that crisis was deliberately not resolved by the people who wanted a constitution. So I, 
I'm with you that the, the modern use of, of massive debt by countries is a real problem. <laughs> I, I really have concern over that. But I disagree with you that the worst that the best thing for a country is to default on their debt, and the worst thing is to not do that. The worst thing is to lose a war and let somebody else conquer yeah. you. Yeah, right? I was. I didn't mean to. I will be. I think what I was saying is a little bit stylized and, and yes, I understand it's not good to default on your debt in many ways. And it is a nice um, thing to have. It offers flexibility, kind of a flywheel or whatever. I get all that. Um, yes. I'm just making an extreme example of where we are now and how, how the traders in our country who have done this to us use that mechanism of debt that we would have been better off if we didn't have it in the first place just because they cannot be trusted. And that's true for a lot, a lot of countries. So yes, but yes, I, I agree with you. You're right. It's very level-headed. Yeah. So, I mean, separate, I think let's hold off on that separate conversation about okay. the modern day. Yes, uh, definitely. Yes. Yeah, the, the federal government shouldn't be borrowing so much money. You and I are on the same page yes, there. <laughs> definitely. About that. But going back to the 1770s and 1780s, the, as the American revolution was winding down, Remember that the war was fought early on, mostly in, in New England. You know, Lexington and Concord, and and the Battle of Bunker Hill, and then it, and then as the the, the British eventually abandoned Boston, and then they moved farther south, and there were battles around New York and Long Island, and then eventually it was in New Jersey, and the the, the British army kicked the, uh, you know, the the Congress out of Philadelphia, and then there was the Winter Valley Forge, and and there was more battles in the, in the mid-Atlantic states, and then eventually it ended up in the South. Well, by the time the Articles of Confederation were officially approved by Maryland, uh, there hadn't been any fighting or British presence in New England for four or five years. So, you know, Battle of Saratoga in New York was in 1777. Then after that, everything kind of moved from New York South. And so the idea that, well, why should I have to pay much more money? We're trying to rebuild from what happened before. We're trying to rebuild Boston. We're not, Massachusetts doesn't need to put a bunch of money into this, into this new system. And what can Congress, if Congress doesn't have any power to, to enforce its, because it didn't even have the power to tax, it basically is asking for voluntary payments from the states. And if you ever are going to build a country that's going to be able to defend itself, you need to have reliable soldiers. And if you yes. promise these soldiers you're going to pay them and that you're going to give them a pension, and then you don't, you can't pay that because all you have is borrowed money and these continental dollars that are worth nothing. So let's go back to what happened in Shays' Rebellion. Yeah. Essentially, the farming class in central and western Massachusetts was living uh, a sust a, a, a the type of farming, let me put it this way, where you're not generating a whole lot of cash. You are growing your food to eat. Uh, you are trading yeah. your labor with your neighbors. You're trading, I'll trade you a yeah. pig for 10 bushels of wheat. I'll trade you a pig if you let Mostly me. Mostly subsistence. Meal, that kind of stuff, right. But meanwhile, what was going on in Boston by the, by 1783, 84? They were they were starting to the trade was starting to pick up. They'd go kill a few whales and have all this whale oil to sell, or they would go have a ship that had gone to China would come back with silk and and they could trade this kind of stuff. And they were starting to make make some more money, um, but and so they were loaning money to farmers so that farmers in Western and Central Massachusetts could buy what they need to get started or buy to, you know to get through. And then farmers hopefully would pay off during during good times yeah. when they good crop but what if you had a bad crop and that was starting to happen there were a few bad years there are they're not having great 
uh, generating a lot of cash. So two things happened kind of at the same time. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts started raising taxes on farmers trying to pay off some of its own debts from the revolution. They started having, raising property taxes and they started sending out officials to go seize these farms and seize the assets of these farmers. So they were increasing their taxes and the merchant and banking class in the big cities, especially in Boston, were, were starting to use the legal process to actually, and this is the legal process of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the state judges, that kind of stuff, to go seize private property to, because these people, these farmers weren't paying their loans off. And the farmers who some of them were Revolutionary War veterans would have been able to pay off their debts if they'd gotten the pensions they were promised. That's outrageous. And you think that that's really how it happened? So that's definitely actually, the narrative. Did they get paid? They got paid in continental dollars. Oh. In Boston said, we're not taking that toilet paper. We're not taking that that central government money. It's not backed by anything. Those de That's not legal tender to pay off debts in Massachusetts. So mm -hmm. if they even did what little cash they had would be continental dollars as veterans. So several veterans, especially a guy named Shea, um, but there, he was with a whole group of them, eventually basically got mobs of farmers together and they started doing what they'd done in the early 1770s. When a government official came around to collect taxes, if he was bad enough, they might dip him in a barrel of tar and, and pour some feathers over him and send him back on a wagon tied backwards with the tied sitting on the back with a horse being pulling him off into the distance. So the, that kind of stuff started happening more and more. Shay's rebellion got pretty much out of hand. The, the the creditors weren't being paid. The state officials were being sent out of town. Judges would try to hold courts to even hear these cases, and mobs would show up and 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 run the judges out of town. So the, there was essentially a complete breakdown in the civil order in Massachusetts, especially in Western and Central Massachusetts. And so Massachusetts calls on the central government and says, are you going to come help us put down these rebels? And the central government can't get anybody to volunteer to do that. The, the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts can't even get anybody to do that. The state doesn't have the money to pay an army. Eventually, the merchants in Boston and Salem and a few of the other eastern uh, Massachusetts cities raised private money to hire a private army to then be essentially deputized by the, by the state to go out and put down the rebellion. But and the rebellion, I, the rebellion was individuals attacking private property the, for the most the, part. The rebellion was the debtors who uh, wanted their property back. But what were they doing that was violent? Property seized because they had borrowed money and couldn't pay it back. And one reason they were cash poor was essentially they were in the they were far right. enough west that they had this economy and they were some of them were saying, look, we are Revolutionary War veterans. We're supposed to be getting right. this pension. I'm saying when you rate I'm I'm wondering if the private army was actually the correct response. I, the private, you army. know what I mean? Who, who is the property where they, so the, the, it's a little mixed because the, the veterans were owed some money by the federal government and the state the government, government. It wasn't the federal government yet. Cause it was in the, what, it was the, what? The central the government. Is central what government. Sorry. Yes. Yes. You're right. The the central yeah. government. That's the nerdy so part. Then, 
<laughs> but the people in the state of Massachusetts were repossessing land according to the laws of Massachusetts. Which required judicial process, which required judges to first hold a hearing to give somebody their due process rights. Is this a valid debt? Have you given them proper notice? Do you actually have evidence right. that they have been making the payments? And so that I don't know. Okay, let me take it. So the rebels beef was with the central government. As a libertarian, I I think courts should do is be able to run a court system to decide disputes, right? If you can't even run a court system, if you've lost the control of the state enough that when you try to, or when, when the, when you try to have a judge actually call the trial to order and what instead happens is private citizens who are parties to the lawsuits who don't want to have, their case heard because they're going to end up having a judgment against them instead shows up with muskets and pitchforks and torches and chases the judge out of town at a minimum i would argue that the the government should be able to at least use enough force to maintain order to be able to have the civil legal process go forward and if you're if the rebellion is getting so out of hand that that's not happening and it's in part because the the central government is not paying its debts and that's causing these people to not have the money to pay off their debts and i wonder if why why did they get the debt in the first place if they're if they're everybody knows that the weather comes in cycles and sometimes you have good years and sometimes you have bad years. Farmers are notoriously risky bet. And these guys had nothing but their land and what the central government owned that owed them. And I wonder if just like the UN does or the IMF, I should say does around the world that the, they, the farmers were deliberately knowingly the money if you if you don't expect them to be able to pay it back and it's the bankers fault, right and then you get no no it's not the bankers fault it's that the bankers had every hope of getting the land it might have been a setup i'm saying why is shays attacking the banker when they should be attacking the central government granted because they're there and they're the ones who are actually taking their you know so to just say well i didn't have this money because my brother-in-law owed me something well you it's still my land unless it was a setup in which case i'm on shay's side Right. So there was two other. So the there was the private debts with the bankers from Boston or Salem or wherever. But there was also the fact that Boston, that Massachusetts was raising taxes on the land. So the in order. Right. To pay, okay. So the yeah. state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts had its own debts from the revolution and has to run its own business. They got to rebuild Boston after right. the after the British. Basically right, that's a problem. Did. That's yeah. a problem because what are they claiming that they have a right to have taxes for? Well, it looks to me like the prime majority of or whatever the taxes should by rights. And this was under the Articles of Confederation, correct, where they actually established a property tax for this purpose. And Massachusetts was collecting the property tax. But were they contributing it to the central government that would have paid these debts? Right. Or so remember that, the, that each state had their own private debts the governor of massachusetts and the legislator of massachusetts right. would borrow money directly from spain or from rich bankers from john hancock right whoever it was uh and they and use that to fund 
the Massachusetts troops that were sent to go fight in the revolution right. or to build defenses, or they did a little bit of a Navy or to whatever, or to rebuild Boston after the British had basically you know destroyed it or Charlestown when it was burned down, that kind of stuff. So the States had their own debts. Plus they were being asked by the central government to chime in and, and, right. and pay some extra money in order to pay that kind of stuff. And especially to have, real hard money like actual coins they wanted to increase these taxes on basically everybody and the merchants sort of could pay the taxes but at the same time like well we'd pay you better if we could get these debts paid off that were yeah that we loan these money to the farmers i just and, the last thing i'll ask it, is about the magnitude of it like was the money that that the veterans was owed was that a huge amount of money i mean it seems like it might have been worth uh converting the confederate the uh the continental dollars to real money well so that's part of the problem who's going to do that well the massachusetts would do it as i mean we that happens every once in a while you're just like look i'm just going to make this whole because there's a problem here i'm just going to make it whole right, and so, so in in 1784 when this happened uh the the commonwealth of massachusetts now an independent state as part of the United States of America and the Articles of Confederation, if they were to agree to accept continental dollars to pay their taxes, then how do they pay their debts? How do they pay? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What's the magnitude of the problem? Like I, I'm trying to validate or invalidate Shay's position. If the magnitude of the money that they were owed is really significant, that the money that the Continentals kind of robbed them of was really significant. It couldn't be resolved. That's one thing. But if it's not super significant, then I would say I, I, I would be suspicious that this was really the cause rather than an excuse. So yeah, I'm just so, thinking about the magnitude. So I think that's a, that's a very interesting historical question. I think the answer is uh, both sides are not as our friend Clint Powell will say, two things can be true at the same time. That the the people who rebelled on Shea's side had legitimate grievances. Le right. Legitimate grievance number one was we're veterans and we were promised yes. a pension. And either the the, the the central government either didn't pay the pension a lot or when they did, they paid it in yes. continental dollars, which were worthless pieces of paper. Right. So they had that legitimate grievance. But that legitimate grievance doesn't necessarily mean that it's the bankers or the merchants in the cities in Boston that loan them actual specie money, real money. Yes. Uh, that it's not their fault that that the that the central government's only paying them in worthless paper, and it's not their fault that these farmers are not making enough money to pay off pay off their debts. They but it was foreseeable. It, it reasonably foreseeable, but that's also that's why you have the judicial process that when you borrow money, you also pledge your land yep. and your personal property against okay. it. All right. I got it. But so, we're hoping to, if we're farmers in Western Massachusetts, that so we're hoping we're going to make decent money. But the backup is, no, by the way, I'm also supposed to get this pension from the from the central government that ends up not being paid or ends up part of the problem is nobody knows how quickly the continental dollar is just going to continue to be worth less and less. It, you know, okay. It, so Massachusetts like the German mark before World War Two. It just so Massachusetts reaches out to the central government. Massachusetts asked for help from the central government to come put down this rebellion. 
and basically got told, we don't have the troops, we don't have the money, we can't get anybody to come help do this. Um, and by the way, you owe us money <laughs> to help pay for the debt because right. you haven't been paying in. And the other states are like, well, we're, we're all recovering too, so we're not paying our debt. So at the end of the day, the central government, here's the ultimate short answer. Under the Articles of Confederation, the central government was so weak that the um, the Shays Rebellion happened. States were starting to make internal treaties with each other, like South and North Carolina would agree to trade with each other, but not accept trade from Virginia or whatever those things were. That kind of happened. It wasn't supposed to, it was specifically right. by the Articles of Confederation. They did it anyway. Okay. So it um, wasn't working. Okay. Now was, that yeah. convinces me. You've got yeah. me there. So those, so those right. kind of things were happening. Um, one of the other provisions is the, the, the full faith and credit clause that survived into the Constitution uh, is in the Articles of Confederation, which means if I put an order out, if I'm a yes. judge in the Commonwealth of Virginia and I say, yes, in fact, you do owe this money to this merchant in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and you take it to Baltimore to, to be enforced, and the judge in Baltimore says, no, we're not going to enforce this because this is a Virginia order. Right. That that's the kind of stuff that also was leading to the Articles of Confederation not working because this, there was nobody stopping uh, the the states from there's no one to enforce the full faith and credit clause. There was no way to do it. There were no federal courts. There were no federal judgments. Okay, I have two things. One is I want to read Magic Marker's comments. Government not paying its debt results in things like Shays Rebellion. So, yes, I get that. Destabilizes the system. I, I agree with you. So, also, all right, so now I'm going to say if it didn't work, it wasn't working, what would be wrong? What, in just your opinion, just logically, would be wrong with it not working? Like, do you, is it a fear of, like, do all the, con do they have to stitch themselves up because they're so afraid of um, Indians on the one side and UK on the other? Or what would be wrong with just 13 small countries, like a balkanization and it, like an organic balkanization? So that would be an absolutely fantastically great question. If you could go back and what's the counterfactual history of the of the United States of America, if the Articles of Confederation has stayed in place, we'd had 13 independent colonies. Um, let's start with let's start with right away, Vermont. Do you remember what was going on with Vermont in, in during the American Revolution? Mm, it was not it a colony. It feels Canadian. <laughs> so Vermont was not a colony. Vermont was actually a territory that Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and New York were all fighting over. They they had been petitioning the British government for years to send in people to help them decide was Vermont part of New Hampshire, because there were ambiguous grants from the king, from parliament over the years when they established the, the borders. Vermont was basically no man's land. Uh, and, and Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys were actually originally founded not to go take Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, but their original agreement was they got together with people from New Hampshire to run off anybody from New York that tried to enforce New York law in the no man's land of Vermont. Were there natives living there? Yeah, I, I think there had there there were still some. Um, but the but the question is, so whose legal system applied in Vermont? Was it the colony of New York or the right. colony? colony of new hampshire and and the answer was it was the the rule of the gun it was the rule of force and it was people like ethan allen and the green mountain boys who were enforcing one side's new hampshire's land grants and rules and and, and laws anyway bottom line so 
under the Articles of Confederation, deciding what to do with that land would have required that whole fancy, uh, you know, picking so many people, then alternately kicking people off the list, then right. names from a hat to have a committee, and they would do the final say. That might have eventually been a way to resolve what happened in Vermont. Instead, once we had the Constitution, we had a process for admitting new states. It was a very clear process, and we admitted Vermont as, as the 14th state. Right. All right, I'll give you if if it wasn't working as an enforcement, because I did actually have that in my notes next to how those uh, adjudications and the taxation, all of that, there's absolutely no enforcement mechanism whatsoever there. And I thought that the only thing was if you didn't voluntarily capitulate, you were opting out and that if if the association had no inherent value or no net value, then opting out was just what you were going to do. And it sounds like they were all kind of opting out. And yeah, so so are you saying that those country, those countries, those states, those countries that were fighting over Vermont would have come to blows? Well, they, I think they arguably could have under the Articles of Confederation because there was no mechanism for the federal government to enforce any rules that it had made. And so New Hampshire, as an independent, effectively country, uh, and New York is an independent country, might have both continued to send people in on both sides to fight it out until they'd reached an agreement. They would have had to reach an agreement between those those two states, maybe in the long run. But what happens in the meantime? If two, if two states in the United States are that much at each other that they're actually going to blows, so my next part of my okay, so what's happening? Wait. What's happening to U.S. merchant trade around the world? Hold on, before you get there. Okay. Uh, so. I think it's abhorrent to us in a like post or a, a monarchical like that's how far advanced we were in Western government. But in the beginning, when tribes and whatnot were divvying up borders, that's how it worked. So I guess maybe it would be more violent, maybe. But maybe not like violence is violent. The Civil War was really super, super violent. And that was under the color of law, supposedly. So I just I'm just, you know, I just feel like a lot of times we assume that like democracy and, you know, law and order. But it, it may be it. You know, this is how it always happened before. And we were just seeing it. It was like anachronistic, but it wasn't necessarily inferior to like having a real system. But OK, so I, I just wanted to make that philosophical point. But what about the merchants, the merchant marines? No. So the, the if, if you owned a ship in Boston and it was going to pick up spices in the eastern Mediterranean, you ran by the Barbary pirates and the Barbary pirates. This is just one small example. Right. And the Barbary pirates would come out and take your ship. Who's going to who's going to protect you? Well, it used to be the British Navy would have protected the the American colonial forces, but the British Navy is certainly not going to protect these upstart Americans. Uh, and in fact, what the British would would sometimes what what they started doing fairly quickly after the Revolution was they would stop American flag ships, come aboard, and go. All right, we're looking for British deserters, and we're allowed to seize your ship and your deserters off of these ships. And if somebody was born in Boston, they might still have an accent that kind of sounded maybe a little bit British, maybe. But if they'd immigrated to Boston in 1767 and now 10 year, 15 years later in the 1780s, who's to say that they weren't in fact British? And the British basically had a very loose system of getting people into the Navy. And it usually right. just popping them over the head and they'd wake up on a British ship. That's right. where the term Shanghai comes from. And this and is two things 
that uh, I think we still see today. One is like in Russia, I know someone who was adopted as a baby out of Russia and he cannot go back to Russia because he did not serve and they don't, I don't know how he got out as a little baby, but you, you have to serve sometimes. And that is how I understand they did that in the British Navy is that they would drag, it was all like all conscription at a certain point. And then I would also say that we underestimate the importance of controlling the seas. Like even right now, when I look to what's happening between us and China, I can't help but begin to conclude that the U.S. Navy is the most, um, it, it's more than any other single entity in the world, it could be the most responsible for ensuring free trade. And that people don't realize that I could be completely wrong. I'm just gleaning this when I'm reading all these Rand Corporation documents and looking at what's happening. And I just feel like the Navy drives that stuff and they're really just keeping the sea lanes clear. And that maybe the reason we want everything produced here is because the Navy's like, we're not going to be able to do it anymore or China's going to have to do it or we're going to compete with China to do it. Um, so I feel like that it, it's an, a question I don't have an answer to about how do you secure the seas? How do you secure trade? I guess you could do it Knights Templar style and just always go with, uh, you know, escorts. Um, my father's on a destroyer escort in the in the war in World War Two in the Pacific. So I'm familiar with how these little things work, these little clusters. But, you know, you might be up against a Navy yeah, or so a bunch of pirates. Several points there. Let me let me chime in a couple. So. I don't know if you know what I did before I went to law school. Uh, I was in the Navy for five years. I was a P3 oh. pilot. So I, and my bias yes, is. Yes, I'm I knew you were a pilot. I'm a, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of the U.S. Navy. And historically, uh, if, if anybody listening wants to kind of read about this period in history when we were trying to figure all this out, there's a great uh, history book called Six Frigates. It's about Thomas Jefferson and how we first built the real Navy, the Constitution, the President, the United States, those original six frigates, and what we had to do. And that never would have been possible, I would submit, under the Articles of Confederation. We never would have gotten the money, the resources together to actually build a, ne a decent Navy. That began. And why did we want it? Because it would allow us to defend our merchants overseas. When, when Americans are trading, they're not the pirates can't just take them, and and we have nobody. The British and the French navies aren't going to stop somebody from raiding an American ship. Right. So and it's collective fact, defense as collective we get defense. out. And, and the British would have raided American ships. That's right. ultimately what led up, led up to the War of 1812 in large part, was the British treated us like we were just a weak country with, with no real ability to fight back. And we ended up fighting the War of, of 1812 over, over that. One other, Let me throw one other little just oh, by the way out there that I would submit that one reason why you and, I'm, you and I could have another long conversation about if you look around the world, what countries historically have the most individual freedom? And it's typically countries that started out from the British system that it's more likely to have the rule of law and individual freedom. And one reason traditionally that I think that that is true is Great Britain was the one power in world history that was built around a navy which went out and protected sea lanes and protected trade and was not and not name another major power that was built around a navy and not an army. Well, I would pull that even bigger and say, if you look at world politics today, you see that it's like that Mackinder doctrine, whatever you see, the Eurasian continent is the is the world island. And that's if you read Guns, Germs and Steel, you can see there's like that's where all the um, communication of seeds and everything and um, the robustness of uh, immunity, all of that come from the world island. H however, 
if you look at the five eyes or the echelon countries, the English speaking countries, these are all the island nations, as I think of them, the UK. Um, and I think of kind of like, you know, the United States and South Africa and Australia as like kind of island outposts that encircled World Island on behalf of the British government and and do and demonstrate that that coalition, which is only connected by navies and surrounds the World Island, is how come the British Empire is still, I, I don't know if you agree with this, this is too far down the rabbit hole, is still, you know, the ultimate power in the West. I, I you know, it, it isn't true on its face. You have to go back and look at Cecil Rhodes and the things that he said in the roundtable and everything. Maybe it's not true, but it seems true to me. And, yeah, uh, and I would attribute that to the power of the Navy over the power of the Army. Yeah. I acknowledge that there is a history of colonialism that wasn't always uh, the best outcome for the people being colonized. In fact, look at the history of the United States that we're talking about. We had to fight a war of revolution. On the other hand, I would I would uh, <laughs> I would agree with you that the his that the historical culture that the British uh, cultural system, the rule of law, individual rights, has been. Uh, essentially what that system looks like around the world that, that that all those countries you talked about have inherited those concepts and it's it's been more good than bad i have to i have to respond to this magic marker says unless you are irish and i am irish i'm actually an irish citizen and uh i have to say that when we're talking about the english system i'm i'm not advocating for their colonialism and i'm not advocating for this navy i'm not advocating for the island nations surrounding i'm not advocating for any of that i would say and i'm not even such a student of english history that i can talk about their colonial um style except for it looks like the spanish colonial style was all about you know um just putting a like a viscount in there or whatever and enslaving people and using it as plantations and pushing everything back to the mother country. Whereas the English system seemed to be more colonial and satellite oriented. Mercantile and, is what you're looking for. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Mercantile uh, in part, but even more than that, in that the, in that the colonies did have that autonomy and were kind of like the liberal arts. I always say this about how the Romans enslaved the Greeks, but didn't allow them to understand the liberal arts because they were slaves. Whereas uh, there were slaves in the system, but there were also uh, free men who were colonies and, and they had that foundation. I would attribute it to the competition between church and state in the history of Europe, but, that's a totally different subject. Uh, so, so when you talk about like Ireland, yes, I feel like English had the English had and still oh, had a vicious or totally unethical, especially from today's point of view, colonial thing and what they did with the Irish famine and all of that. Yeah, bad, bad, bad. However, it's just like looking at the U.S. Constitution in the context of slavery. To the extent it permitted slavery, did not solve the problem of slavery. It's it's bad. However you it also presents a framework that could work easily to extend liberty and justice for all even to freed people or in a post-slave slavery world and i feel like when you look at it and you say because it accommodated slavery at the time you should throw out the baby with the bathwater i feel like it is a great document i i actually if we could restore the constitution to what we were talking about i would accept it and uh we have bastardized it and I feel like people who are led to believe that um, we need a new constitution, either from the left or the right, 
we're, we're never going to get what either side thinks they want from that, that the original one is probably the best that you would ever get in self-limiting government as an experiment, although I feel like it did fail. So is the proof in the pudding. So one more counterfactual, and then I think we can go back to see whatever else you want to. Yep. What, would have, what would have happened in 1803 when uh, Napoleon offered to sell Louisiana to a country that couldn't raise any money? Where would we have gotten the $5 million from if we couldn't pay off, if we were $8 million in debt and the states weren't willing to cough up anything? So if, if you look at all these different things that would have had that, that the Articles of Confederation uh, made the central government so weak, would we have lost that opportunity? The, the largest trans peaceful transfer of territory, I think, in the history of mankind uh, was, the, and, and certainly the one with the most resources, was the opportunity to buy Louisiana and make it part of the United States. Um, anyway, we can go through all these different things that would have happened. That's early in American history. God forbid that America hadn't been the national, the, 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 the arsenal of democracy in 1940. Um, those kind of things. Well, but I, World War One, we we created 1940 by getting involved in World War One. Yeah, maybe we did. I thought. I'm I, just I, saying you can't you can't pull it out of the timeline because. I would say that the British had a hand in not only trying to destroy Germany in World War One, but also in subverting its culture and kind of promoting a really pathological response to World War One. And there's a great book called Conjuring Hitler. But again, I'm down in the rabbit hole. It's by yeah. Guido Preparata, who's quite respected. So I, I yeah, these, are all, these are all great, good conversations. <laughs> If you're going to throw 1940 out there, you're, you're, I'm going to throw out 1914. Yeah, I, I'm with you that the United States, well, that, that, that what happened after World War I instead of World War II, I agree. Uh, how much of that was the United States' fault versus the United States did what they could? Well, it's the UK's fault, but we shouldn't have violated our Constitution to go do that. Like Woodrow Wilson violated the Constitution to fight that war. Um, boy, we're really going off in rabbit holes. I don't okay, well, you say, you know, you, you triggered me. So go ahead. All right, so let's go back. So we've got, um, so the Articles of Confederation, let's just agree that they were not working and that the, the, those colonies, those states were not going to live in peace and prosperity without some kind of unifying agreement and that the Articles of Confederation weren't too strong, they were too weak, and that there needed to be something with a little more structure that had enforcement mechanisms to accomplish the goals that, that were supposedly uh, the point of the revolution and the Articles of Confederation. So something needed to change. And one thing I know you and I wanted to talk about was, so you brought the Constitution in as a change, and that it actually was a good change, and and here are two questions for you. Was it establishing a different system or was it just strengthening, you know, in nature, the same system? And then what happened to that? So uh, I would. So basically it the the states agreed it was not working so badly so poor it was working so poorly that they actually five states got together in annapolis in 1775 or so um and then by i'm sorry 1785 to 
basically get together and say this this is not working and very quickly several other states joined in and ultimately what happened is in the congress under the articles of confederation they passed a resolution that set up a committee to quote amend the articles of confederation that's what they were supposed to do and that's the people that met in philadelphia in 1787 they ultimately you know the famous after the the, after the constitution they come out and people ask benjamin franklin what kind of government do you have and he said a republic if you can if you can keep it right so that all happened in between 1784 and 1787 it just really came apart and enough colonies enough states by that point were worried about it that they started meeting separately and then eventually all got together and and pushed the change i i will say that the even patrick henry seemed to be did was he at least open to amending the articles of confederation i feel like he was like i feel like he recognized there was a problem i could be wrong i think at first he said i smell a rat or some mythical statement like that doesn't seem like his level of eloquence to be honest but yeah so so another part of the nerdy deep dive if you want to get into that debate federalist 40 is the one where james madison answers the arguments of the anti-federalists about whether or not it was appropriate to write a whole new constitution versus just minor amendments to the uh, to the Articles of Confederation. And one of the, you and I are both attorneys, so the nerdy part about it that gets interesting is there was a, a um, motion passed in Congress in 1776 that if we're going to declare independence, it has to be unanimous. Then when they agreed on the Articles of Confederation, they agreed these are the terms we're all going to live by, but it's not officially in place until it is passed unanimously. And it says in the Articles of Confederation, all amendments must be adopted unanimously by the Congress of the United States. And at that point, the Congress consisted of 13 teams, each one two to seven people sent by the states. So in order to amend the Articles of Confederation, arguably it should have been adopted by all 13 states for it to become effective. However, do you remember what the Constitution actually said? I thought it said nine. It does. Okay. So one of the nerdy arguments you get into is, was the Constitution even legal? Because the committee, the one where Ben Franklin walks out afterwards and says, we now have a republic and keep it, was actually only authorized by the government to make amendments to the Articles of Confederation and for them to be amended, they had to be adopted unanimously. And Wait, I thought the amendment was nine. I thought amendment was nine and that replacement would just be, no? The Articles of Confederation to be amended required all 13 states Hold to on. agree. I'm pretty sure. No, I, I believe you. I just want to see where I uh, I it's, made a note. Supermajority. Articles. 13 of the Articles Articles of Confederation, each state shall abide by the determination of the United States Congress and assembled on all questions by which this confederation are submitted to them, and the articles of this confederation shall be inviolably observed by every state, and the union shall be perpetual, nor shall any alteration at any time hereafter be made in any of them, unless such alteration be agreed upon agreed to in a Congress of the United States and be afterwards confirmed by the legislature of every state. Okay, wait, where is that exactly? This is an article 13 of the Articles of Confederation. In order to Ugh, amend... This is so annoying. Mine is like 
blah, blah, blah. It's not. Ugh. Article. I don't have 13 articles. I'm like article 10. <laughs> oh, I see it. Article 13. Okay. Every state shall buy. So it has to pass Congress and then be approved by every state legislature to amend the okay. article at all yeah i actually have the note unanimous vote needed to alter this in any way yes yeah. you're right the nine so, was was um about the war okay yeah so to, to, so in order okay. to kind of like kind of cut to the chase for anybody who's listening to this the argument on one hand that james Madison put out in federalist 40 is the famous hillary clinton argument well, what does it matter anymore or the or the or, or, or what Biden said was that was well that was five days ago Jack. So essentially, he argues it's too late. The Articles of Confederation were so bad, and that the public will really needed a new constitution. And so, don't bother me with the niceties of the fact that it had to be unanimous to be changed. We made it adopted by nine, and you guys just need to get over it because that's a practical thing to do. The technical legal argument that you and I would probably be more satisfied with is that that was probably a perfectly good defense until eventually all 13 colonies at the time adopted the Constitution. And once they and, did. And they did. Yeah. So eventually they did. And so it's kind of moot at that point, I would argue. The defense well, what that is, yeah, then it's that, not being adopted as a an extension of the Articles of Confederation. What it's doing is dissolving the Articles of Confederation and unanimously agreeing to a different form of government. Correct. Arguably, in order to get out of the Articles of Confederation, it had to be unanimous. And so the nine states approving the Constitution was probably from the kind of technical, if you follow the chain of authority kind of thing, probably unconstitutional or unauthorized. But it's a moot point because eventually uh, all 13 states adopted the Constitution. And so they yeah. essentially waived that argument is how I would argue that as a if I was and ever in the Supreme Court trying to argue the Constitution is valid. And when we, we talked about the 14th Amendment, I kind of feel the same way. It's like I it doesn't look to me like those Reformation Amendments were uh, ratified correctly, but. If you took a vote now, clearly, you know, accepting it, we've accepted it. Like everybody's accepted it. If any state had a real objection to it, they really would have had to have raised it by now because there's just too much reliance on it. So that's also like a concept of law. Like eventually the statute of limitations for objecting to something that you have accepted as the legally binding is gone. Yeah, you've, you've waived your argument. The, the yeah. equitable term is latches. You've, you've sat on your, oh. your rights for too long. Sat on your latches. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got you. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's right. We did talk about that last time. All right. So, uh, so the constitution, let's say the constitution is a legitimate document and assuming um, for the sake of argument, it's legitimate. Assuming for the sake of argument, we accept <laughs> it. Okay. So now we're at the point where, uh, I say, even with the Constitution, I'm, I, I don't I don't consent to be governed, but I will I would consent. I will compromise my philosophical uh, agorism or philosophical anarchism because I feel like the Constitution is is manageable. And if you were ever going to have a self-limiting government, it was most likely to be formed 
uh, with the best chance of success in this period of time by these people. It's like the age of enlightenment. The rebels were actually, you know, scholarly gentlemen who were experienced and learned and had their values in the right place. If the narrative is to be believed, we could go down that rabbit hole too. The, uh, I absolutely um, am disgusted by the way uh, many people past, present, and future look at indigenous people or unborn people or enslaved people and make the argument that they don't have the same rights, that whatever. So I don't consider that the United States or America was um, was virgin territory, but for their purposes it was. So you didn't have to negotiate with prior lien holders. Like you were saying, like even by then there were already title disputes about the territories. So it was basically a clean slate as far as this type of um, foundation could be read. So you you had the most auspicious circumstances um, and they came up, I think with a good document, especially after they they added the Bill of Rights, which I would not have wanted on the Articles of Confederation, but I do want on the Constitution, and I like it. And um, uh, I would ask if you agree with that and if we agree on how it went wrong and if it going wrong was inevitable because a seat of power will always be uh, you know, absorbed and corrupted. But So did you like it when it started out? When did it go wrong? And was that inevitable? So I think, yes, I think the Constitution's not absolutely perfect. There are issues, obviously, with slavery, with the Native Americans. It's it's a difficult thing. I think people like you and I recognize to not engage in presentism, applying our current day's values to what they were trying to do. We have to remember what the world was like in the 1770s and 1780s, where serfs in Russia was normal. And, and there was and, a big problem, though, also with the slave thing, because um, as repugnant as it is to any i think even at the time they knew if you read contemporary stuff that's why like i i always liken it to the abortion argument you go back and read the contemporary stuff they're like you got to be kidding you don't think they're human beings they're fucking human beings like you're just saying that because you want the land but uh the way they thought it was property and for the government to come in and say like you paid for these people and you know, you would have to compensate them. Like, I think they, re I'm certain they recognized the problem with it. They didn't like it. And if you look at the foundation of the Confederacy, they actually say in that one of the main speeches was the difference between the Confederacy and the United States is when they founded the United States, they wanted to move away from slavery. They didn't know how to resolve the problem. We embrace it. Like we are not it's coming at it from that uh, point of view. So they understood the problem and they were, I believe, uh, I, I actually would say that they formulated a framework that should be able to survive resolving that transition. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you, you brought up a couple of things. Let me, let me ask you this. Let me bring up this question and see what you think. So, we, I think we both agree that slavery was horrible and that people both in the 1700s and 1800s probably knew better, but there were some cultural things. It was the history of the world. It's hard. Economics. It's hard to fix those things all at once. And yes, we, we eventually did. And I'm glad that America eventually did that. If the Articles of Confederation were the ones that were the set of rules that would have better worked for people who were not interested in central authority, do you know? anything about the confederate constitution oh was it based on the articles of confederation no 
it's very much based on the U.S. Constitution. Yes, yes, right. They right. started with the U.S. Constitution. Yes, right, they made yeah. some they, a couple like leave aside slavery, which let's agree it's horrible, and just have the academic nerdy topic for a second. They changed things like uh, that the members of the cabinet have the privilege of the floor during congressional debates. <laughs> they added that. Right. So the only thing they did was say we embrace slavery. Right. Uh, uh, the, the president serves one six-year term and can't run for re-election. They can't can't have, can't serve two terms in a row. Yeah. Those are the kind of minor yeah, changes yeah. that the Confederacy did when they thought that you know with. So even the, rejecting the Union entirely, they still didn't go back to the prefer the Constitution. Very good. Right. Okay. Very good. So and and I think that good would point. also be. Part it goes it goes to the fact that that the system was working pretty well, other than the slavery problem, which caused the Civil War, but that the Constitution protected individual rights otherwise, and eventually gave the opportunity. And I think the Civil War ended with the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments essentially being the peace treaty of the war that the South had to agree to those constitutional amendments in order to get back in. And at that point, the Constitution was a, I think a pretty good document that protected individual rights. I would argue that a lot of the problems of civil rights for the next hundred years after the civil war was not a problem with the constitution. It was a problem with certain conservative and with a small C uh, Supreme court justices who were pretty much racist, who threw out a lot of laws that Congress, but they, the, 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 the civil rights act of 1866 had was basically replaced by the 14th amendment. And then the civil rights act that was passed right after that, they threw it out again and it didn't really, and the Supreme court really didn't uphold a civil rights act until the one from the 1960s. But what about Eisenhower's? Uh, that, that sort of got upheld, but, and that was like with the, with Brown versus board of education and those kind of cases, but the civil rights act of 1965 was the one that the Supreme court eventually really upheld. But so the, so, but there was basically a very similar civil rights act passed in the 1870s that was totally, totally rejected right. by the old Supreme court saying the 14th amendment didn't give the federal government that kind of power. I think they were wrong. And I think the Supreme Court really screwed that up. But that also led to, I think, a lot of the trouble we had in the 20th century that made it so that we could continue to have racism and give all this power to the central government. That privileges and immunities clause was actually clearer in the Articles of Confederation than it ended up being in the Constitution. Remember, yeah, we had a big, long conversation about that. It was It's crystal clear in the Articles of Confederation. The privileges and immunities of the, all the states go to all the people, which I think... I could be wrong of all the free free people, except for vagabonds. And yeah, uh, it does say it does say free persons and just says <laughs> not vagabonds and something else. Yeah. But that goes, I think, supports your position last time, which I accept that it is meant to um like give the those rights and liberties to every single person, regardless of what the state law is. But I could be wrong. No, I think I'm, we already covered that. Yeah, we covered that back. on the previous one that we're talking yes. about the fourteenth amendment that, yes. that one of the many ways the United States Supreme Court screwed up was in the late 1800s, throwing essentially throwing out the privilege and immunity clause. That's an oversimplification in the slaughterhouse cases. Right, um, right, right. That is right. So I direct people to our last conversation, which was from about a month or six weeks ago, and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So we've gotten down in the weeds a whole lot. What? <laughs> okay. No. So so let's just wrap this up and say, or bring it home and say, uh, so 
I'm what I was hoping out of this conversation was that I could not casually throw out. Well, if we don't still if we didn't still have the Articles of Confederation, everything would be fine. I needed to be corrected. And you did the work for me. So thank you. And I'm not saying huh? Can I throw out one more challenge on that. Yes. But and first, I have to say, like, I, I didn't up. nobody told me I needed to be corrected. I just like to be corrected. <laughs> and when I know somebody who's smart, I can just pick his brain instead of reading like a 400 page book. So go ahead. All right. So the last point I'd like to make about that, and I think this is an important one, that under the Articles of Confederation, there was no mechanism to have a check on the states if they were the ones that started to invade your personal liberties. So if you live in North Carolina and North Carolina passes a law that says you are not allowed to advocate for women's rights, you're not allowed to advocate. Oh, but that's vote, okay because it's a country. That's right. So what? So my point is, I would submit one of the defenses for the Constitution is that it gave a national mechanism to guarantee minimum rights for all Americans. Okay, I'm down with that. Like, I like rights. <laughs> However, I would say that what you're then doing is deciding on a national culture that you are going to enforce. And I'm a complete fan of liberty and rights, everything. But there are some countries where you could probably take a vote and get a unanimous vote that church and state should be combined. And you can't have a democracy. You know what I mean? Like, it starts getting really in the weeds if you're going to say that um, you're going to layer government in order to secure rights. I like rights. I'm an anarchist, but I'm just saying either you're going to have government or you're not. And the upper levels of government, I don't think, I mean, if you decide to, you decide to, but like, I don't have an inherent problem with a state not being policed by an overarching state, even if it's an egregious offense. Okay. So, because right, push- are you going to invade another country for allowing abortion? So, okay, so the, 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 the point is... I mean, that's that a real question. Like, should we invade are, Canada? But, but, but the, first of all, the, the 13 states that formed the Articles of Confederation that formed the United States had already agreed to a perpetual union. Right. That's fine. Right? Yes. Okay. But, yes. But, I'll, so I'll what, grant you that. What, yes. What, could, what, what had already happened was, and about half of them allowed for chattel slavery and half of them didn't or very quickly the other half of them didn't, eventually the national consensus was that they put in a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right you couldn't have slavery anymore. A similar question would be, are we going to guarantee freedom of speech? Okay, I like it. I like it. And I I just want to say why I like it. I like it because what you're saying is we can't... So I'm looking at the Articles of Confederation the way I look at the EU. It's about trade and the right to work and travel and about like a mutual defense, I guess would fold kind of like NATO's titular bullshit, but whatever. Um, So if you're saying that in order for us to have a union that works, we need to share certain values or it's not going to work, that adds another layer and it makes it more complex, but I will... I, I don't think that's inherently illegitimate. Yeah, okay, so a couple of examples. There's a guarantee in the Constitution. That the, the federal government guarantees all, to all states a Republican form of government. So the the federal government would have had constitution. In the Constitution or in the article, not in the Articles of Confederation. No, it's, in the, it's, not in the, yeah. it's not in the Articles of Confederation. Yes. One of the, it's one of the things I would argue as a constitutional libertarian <laughs> that yes. – one of the advancements made by the Constitution was guaranteeing a Republican form of government for all the states. It would—it's a legitimate force of, for, form of authority. For example, if Huey Long had stayed in power long enough, and, and Louisiana had turned into basically one-man rule, which was <laughs> yeah. the 
heading before he was assassinated, the federal government would have had the constitutional authority to step in and ensure that the elections were free and fair. I feel like the Articles of Confederation kind of imply that because you're not allowed to negotiate with a king or anything. But yeah, that but they had no authority to enforce anything. So enforce anything internally, right? So if South Carolina wanted to continue okay. to to basically say, okay, what we've decided is we're going to elect a uh, chancellor, and that chancellor is going to okay. be able to issue uh, law, and, with, think- and it's a it's powers for life. The federal government would have the chance to step in, but back then the states would not have been able to do that. Okay, so I feel like it's the same thing that what Rockefeller and that cabal wants to do with nation states. They've said like if they're not if they're not compatible, you can't have a world government. So we need to slow down the West and speed up the East. This is from like old deep state documents from the middle of the 20th century, if I recall correctly. And similarly, if you want to have a union, you have to have certain conforming um, styles and values. Okay, I will accept that as perhaps even being self-evident. So, all right, so let's just um, let's just say what would you consider, you had mentioned early on, and I mentioned one too, the income tax amendment, the Senate, and for me, the Department of Justice should have required a constitutional amendment, If you, but I would want you to correct me on that. Those are the three things that I think were the most significant Departures like, of course, the Woodrow Wilson putting us in World War One and ultimately <laughs> on the path to World War Two, as Magic Marker mentions, is a big problem. But let's talk about real quick why the income tax, why the Senate um, amendment. And, and in my case, I'd like you to answer what the problem with the DOJ is and the FBI. But you do yours. And add one more to that list. And it's the it's the wheat field cases. Um, okay, let's that, do it. Those, those, I think, are the big departures. So let me run through that. You very have two big. minutes for each one. Two minutes. All right. So which one was first? <laughs> okay, let's do the income tax. All right. So the income tax was uh, – there was an income tax passed during the Civil War. It was eventually declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Article 1 says that the power of the federal government – Article 1 of the Constitution, the power of the federal government to lay taxes has to be uh, in accordance with the representation of each state. So the number of representatives you give based on your based on your population is how much can be that state can be taxed. And instead, they wanted to tax income. They started out with 2% on um, on corporations only, not even individuals, but they couldn't even do that without an amendment. There was even a proposal that the amendment would be limited to 10% of anybody's income, and that was shot down by the people who were who were opposed to it because they said, well, if we say 10%, it might someday go as high as 10%. The point was that opened the door yeah. to individual income tax, raising big money for the federal government. I think that was the number one change that happened early in the 20th century that that put the constitution on its head and move too much power to the federal government. That's the most important one. So but, it's not, I always misread it as the right to, to have the enforcement mechanism for taxation. Um, but you're saying that when it was apportioned to the state, similar to the way the articles of confederation was, that wasn't a deal breaker. But when it went to income tax, because of the, the huge capacity to generate cash directly to the federal government on the personal level, that was the beginning of the end in one, one, Yes, absolutely. That the, the the distinction is that the Constitution allows the federal government to actually collect money directly from the states, and the states have to pay. There is that mechanism that the Congress has the authority right. to raise that money and actually enforce it, but it has to be done 
proportionally so each state pays in accordance with the number of representatives that they get that's what's in article one of the constitution and that was what was overturned by the 16th amendment allowing for direct taxation of individuals and corporations okay let's do the senate is that 17 yeah so the 17th amendment no 18th amendment right 17th was or 17th which would be yes women voting or is 19 i'll double check but yeah i think 17 is the senate yeah, so this, the, whichever one it is, it's one of the populist amendments. And the idea was that the states, in their interest to ensure that the cultural differences, that the freedom choices, that the business choices that those states made would be somewhat protected in this new Congress. And so remember that the Artist Confederation was a unicameral legislature. It was one body that decided everything. And part of the division of authority not only do we create three different branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial in the Constitution, but we split the legislative body in half and gave half of that to the people, the House of Representatives, and the other half to the states, the Senate. And each Senate, each state would elect their senators in a manner to be determined by the state, which is what was in the Articles of Confederation originally to decide how, how to send their delegates. So the state legislature would have effectively... Uh, choose how many senators would well, who their senators were that would represent them and the senator's motivation was to protect the state interest to protect my tennessee not the united states generally or the people in the way that they're voting so that was a that was a big change in the federal government the way it works and it allowed effectively for more populist movement of the laws and the directions of the, the winds of change. All of a sudden, it's very popular that we want more government programs and they're easier to pass. And there's nobody to slow that down and say, wait, 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 we, that, that hurts our state. And so changing the direct election of senators, I think, was the other big one. And those two opened the door for the giant administrative state for the 20th, of the 20th century. And actually, Alexis de Tocqueville did, I'm actually timing you, um, the Alexis de Tocqueville did I identify that balance of having something that was straight from the, the states in the Senate and popular in the Congress as being uh, a nice counterpoise. And instead, it became the Senate going popular was like a force multiplier for demagoguery or whatever. But what are the Wheatfield cases? All right. So when Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president, continuing the tradition from Woodrow Wilson of let's have the experts solve all these problems. So we need big government agencies. It's truly what it means when you talk about progressivism. The whole idea of progressivism is that society would be better if we would take take politics out of it and just let the experts run stuff. And of course, the entire naivete about that is you're going to put people in these big agencies who are going to be political animals because most human beings are. And so they're not going to make purely uh, expert choices on what's the best way to do this. Plus, how are we going to agree on what the best direction we want an expert to be? Is it going to be more helpful for the farmers or for the bankers? Is it going to be more helpful for the merchants or is it going to be more helpful uh, for the for the really rich big businesses? That Those kind of choices. When you put the experts in charge, you've taken the people and the states out of it. And so what happened was the Supreme Court looked at the Constitution in the 1930s and basically said, uh, that Article One, Section 8, those powers uh, delegated to Congress don't allow for 
the uh, these big agencies to run all the pieces of our lives. And specifically what Congress relied on under FDR was the power to regulate interstate commerce. The Wheatfield cases, a far, they put in place this agency during the Depression that micro, like micro-managed farm production. One of the things that it basically said is you couldn't grow more than the approved acreage of wheat and you had to sell it for a certain price and and was like extremely micromanaged and this farmer they put up a challenge and oh yes what he argued was i've grown my nine acres of wheat that i'm allowed i have another four acres but that's just for me and my family and my own cow And the and that got the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said no. The fact that you have this other wheat grown that you're choosing not to put in interstate commerce affects interstate commerce, and therefore that's not unconstitutional for them to rate for the government to regulate that for Congress to have this law micromanaging farm production, and therefore what that means is anything affects interstate commerce. Yes, that is absolutely preposterous on its face. And I remember at my father's knee, him telling me about that. My father's a truck driver. It's not like he was a lawyer, but he was telling me, he was like, can you believe that this interstate commerce clause is the, it was the downfall of this country and the way it was misinterpreted and yada, yada. So I absolutely, I didn't know that's what it was called, but it was like a mythical story in the back of my mind. I was like, I think you're not even allowed to eat your own wheat without, uh, getting the evil arm. So completely contrary, I would say. And I would argue that contrary of what it was intended to be, the commerce. I would argue that was the the turning point when the United States stopped being a free society and stopped being a constitutional. And that's still the law, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what opened the door for the second half of the 20th century to be the and administrative state. Yes. Now, what what good news is there? We we can talk about. You know, on another show, I'd love yes. to come back and talk about yes. like EPA versus West Virginia, where the Supreme Court basically said, no, we're not going to allow uh, agencies to have such a wide interpretation of the statute that gives them authority. Whether or not they even have that authority and, and following the Commerce Clause, I think we need a few more Clarence Thomases. Uh, but at least they're starting to question some of the broad powers given to the administrative state. Okay, so I'm going to set this up for next time. What I want to talk about is that one thing that I have not convinced throughout our conversation here is that it was an improvement to introduce an executive branch, and it is completely out of control, an administrative law on the first day of law school, the first day of constitutional law at Stanford, which promotes like Supreme Court justices like crazy, sat down and they said, we are not discussing constitutionality of administrative law in this class. It's probably unconstitutional. That's not what we're here to talk about. So I want to talk about that with you. And the EPA case will be an interesting, um, you know, subject, object lesson or whatever, like example for, I think, that discussion. What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good one. And the one about the mandate for the the vaccines fell right under that conversation. There's a couple other cases like that. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, that's all. I can't wait. So... When I was in law school, we basically had that similar conversation in constitutional law. We're not going to talk about administrative law so much. We're talking about all this stuff because there's so much ground to cover. And we had a mandatory class called the American Public Law Process that was all about the administrative state and the administrative law, but it was basically how to do with it. I had other advanced classes where I asked teachers the question, well, how is this how do, how's the authority for this work in the first place? And the answer is the Wheatfield cases. 
And the Weedfield cases for me are kind of like Plessy versus Ferguson. That was the Supreme Court basic. That was the one that said separate but equal is yes, okay. Yes, yes. It's okay to make the black people sit in the back of the bus yes. as long as the seats are the same. <laughs> Crazy. Or if literally he could, they could make the guy ride on a different train car. Uh, it's yeah, and and the, the Supreme Court was totally. These are people who are all paying the same taxes. Yes, it's it's racist. It's 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 as racist as it gets. Right. Saying that everybody equals the law of land, and it was finally overturned in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which was about 48 years, 56 years later, 58 years later, because it was 1896 was Plessy versus Ferguson, so it was 58 years later. We're due for the Supreme yeah. Court to sit down and go. The Wheatfield case is stupid. That would and be so great. Let's let's. Yeah. That's probably why they've got to take out Clarence Thomas because he would be the man. I think. I don't oh, know. he's definitely the man. He's already said it, <laughs> and some of the other ones are leaning in that direction. But the, yeah, that's one reason why you're seeing the modern progressives being so upset at the Supreme Court is they can see that coming. Right, and heading on, heading uh, attacking Ginny Thomas. So I would. Uh, so let's just leave this till next time. But I do want people to know you give your time to this, and you do so much homework, and I really appreciate it. And uh, the least we can do is to tell people if they have a disability issue. Why don't you tell them again? You know who who would be a suitable client for you, and how they can reach you. Yeah, thanks, Monica. So Eric Buchanan and Associates, Chattanooga, Tennessee, we help people all over the United States that have disability insurance issues. We also do life insurance and health insurance. Um, we have six attorneys. We work all over the United States, and our website is BuchananDisability.com. That's so awesome. I really appreciate your time and expertise, and I love the back and forth. I hope I'm not too argumentative, and I know I interrupt a lot, but we've got to do pace. I like pace, and you are up to the task. I'm so grateful. And uh, until next time, so let's say goodbye uh, and we will see y'all. And thanks for coming, listeners and commenters. Well, next time I'll give people a little more notice so they can chime in live. Thanks, Monica. I really enjoyed it today. Appreciate Me it. Too. That was great. <laughs>